podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the Marketers Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Celtic State of Mind, I'm Paul John Dykes and today I am delighted to be joined by Victoria McNulty. Victoria, welcome to the show. Hiya, thank you for having me. Ah, it's an absolute pleasure you're sitting next to a fellow poet in Kevin Graham. These are from the same kind of scene, the spoken word scene. Let's talk a wee bit about that. Um, hard times at the moment. Yeah, indeed. Um, indeed, obviously uh, spoken word is a stage-based art form and a uh, there's no stage performances going on in Scotland just now, so it's a wee bit of a a limbo that a lot of performers are in, kind of waiting for the go-ahead to, you know, run theatre shows, run live gigs, and how to work out how to work around that in the meantime. Ah, it's bound to be a bit weird, and I mean, when I speak to people who, for example, are comedians or, or they're in bands... You always talk about the great Scottish heritage of live entertainment, don't you? Yeah. Uh, a massive part of that is uh, the scene that uh, the guy to your left is in. Uh, into, and he's introduced me into a lot of that because I, I probably didn't have a, any knowledge at all of the spoken word scene, uh, if you would call it that. But Kevin's maybe enlightened me a wee bit. And as you say, it's just it's gone from having a, a platform and a very like thriving, healthy platform for live entertainment in Scotland to absolutely zilch. We had a we had a comedian in here doing one of the other shows on a state of mind a few weeks back, Kevin. I think you watched it, uh, and he was talking about you know the great comedians that have gone through that process of going to all these wee venues and all the different nights that became almost like go to places as part of your development. And now the shutters have come down. Do you think? And I asked Edgar this yesterday. Do you think enough's been done 
to try and safeguard uh, arts and culture within this country? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I'm very aware that there's a, a, a necessary kind of protocol and precaution that needs to go in place just now to make sure that you know people can watch live theatre or live performance safely, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And if you think we went into lockdown in March... And, you know, now we're in a situation where nightclubs like the subclub are getting into difficulty, things that have been really established in the mm. Scottish arts scene. Uh, no, I, I think nothing's been done, in fact. And it's um, we're going to see a knock-on effect to that, even at a grassroots level. I mean, you've just described comedians going around certain pubs, kind of honing their craft. Where is a young poet going to do to learn how to have stagecraft or hold an mm. audience at the moment? Um, it's, yeah, nah, I don't think, I think we need to be looking at, like I was in the pub on Friday, you know, the pub was full, you know, no social distance and very little precaution, and I'm like, I can go out for something to eat, Mm -hmm. I can't watch someone playing an acoustic guitar. It just seems like it's been left to the side. Doesn't make sense. No. Yeah, no, I'm not asking for a a returnee you know, going to watch Rage Against the Machine in a park and jumping about with 80,000 people because that would be yeah. irresponsible. But if you can go for a meal, like you say, and you can go into a, a pub and you've been able to go into the boozer for some time now, yeah. it seems very unusual that no live music can be part of that experience. Yeah. I've never seen much hugging at a sp- spoken word night anyway or much motioned in the front or, a, or anything like that. There's, there's all, I know, and there was a spoken word day at the weekend there in Liverpool, and it was outside. Yep. They'd done it outside yep. uh, a pub on Bond Street. It was run by the guys with Violet Records. Mm. They run that. Eh? Is there anything like that going on in Glasgow, or is it just mainly online? It seems to be mainly online, or what I'm aware of is online. Um, necessity pushed established nights online. And now because there's such an up in the air about... What's I mean, I've heard, you know, there's issues with funding and things up until March. Funding bodies are not wanting to put live performance on either. So, yeah, no, it doesn't seem to be much. And I think also from a promoter's perspective, people are scared to break the rules or skirt round rules or do something that's perceived to be irresponsible. And they don't want to be that person where there's a coronavirus outbreak at mm-hmm. something they've put on. And I, I totally yeah. understand that. So people are a bit scared, I think, to move forward. Well, why, why do you think that the, the government, especially the, the British government, don't hold the arts and culture up as high as as high as high the, as the education or something like that? Because we're, we're both parents yeah. and we really wanted the kids to go back to school because they need that sort of learning. They need the other, they, they, yeah. they need other kids in that. But they also need culture. Yeah. The, the, the public also needs things to take their mind off, mm-hmm. like what's actually happening in, the, in, in this yep. world. So why do you think it always takes a back seat? I think there's a few reasons for it. I think, firstly, people don't always understand to what extent they're consuming culture. And so if you really break it down, you know, you watch a box set on Netflix, that's art. You know, you buy a shirt with a nice print on it, well, you know what an artist made it, your select top that's all nice, somebody's designed that. Mm-hmm. You know, every album you listen to, but we do it so inherently every day that I think that people just think it's no there. Mm-hmm. You're just kind of, it's osmosis. And I, I, I think that 
there's a, 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 a constant pull that I feel that I can observe between what is high art form mm-hmm. and what is considered low culture. And I don't think that the likes of watching an acoustic like guitar act in a pub on a Sunday is very high up the list of the Scottish government's priorities, you know. And but that's down to what, what do we place value in, and mm-hmm. maybe a lot of it's down to monetization as well. You know, we get so much art for free, mm-hmm. so we don't value it, so we don't fight for it. No, that's really interesting, and I think that this lockdown. You mentioned earlier on there was people doing uh, streams yeah. for for free. I think that was one of the reasons that we got you in here today was to speak about the fanzine. Uh-huh. And I'm now of the opinion, and I think it's lockdown that's made me bring this opinion, that art like spoken word and that should be performed and should be read, but should be physically read. Yes. I, I, I'm, not, I'm no longer a fan of it been put on blogs or websites or yeah. Instagram. It has to be, for somebody to get paid for their art, it's got to be in a physical form. Yeah. And I say that with music as well. There's some things you, you, you hear now on a on a, a, a download and you go, I want that physically in my hand. And I think that this lockdown's made me appreciate that more yeah. than what I did before it. Before it, it was just more, it was easy. Yeah. Just to download some, watch something. Yeah. Uh, you made a fantastic video, a horse fight, mm-hmm. and it's, check it out on YouTube. It was absolutely brilliant, but that showcased your that that's something that you want to see online. That, that's something you used two bits of art there to create something magical. It was brilliant. Thank you. So I, I, I think I, I, I do think the physical has to come back out of this. Do you think it will? Because I think you mentioned the music there and, you know, there was a time, Kevin, where somebody laughed at me the other week because I queued up outside the shop to buy an Oasis record on the day of release. You're not on your own You know, and (laughs) these things just don't happen now. And the fact of the matter is now we've gone so far. So in the previous podcast earlier today, we were talking about Reserve League and, and, you know, we've gone too far and we'll never get back to having it because not enough clubs will be able to afford it. And I think it's the same way music. You know, music shops, uh, retailers are, are closing down and the pandemic, and when we get back to, and it's uh, now being called the new normal, will there be any music stores? I mean, I used to walk down Rose Street in Edinburgh and, you know, you could go up to FOP. Back in the day, it was a, a one-summer trip with my brother through to Edinburgh to Avalanche and places like that. And these places were already struggling prior to the pandemic. And it's so sad to the point where your choices are limited. So even if you wanted to support the artist, I guess you could probably uh, buy it direct, which would always be a good thing. We had, um, for example, Edgar Summertime in yesterday, and um, a lot of his releases have been on independent labels. So you buy direct, and a much ma- a much larger part of the proceeds go directly to the the, the company and, and the artist if they've got a good deal. Uh, whereas back in the day, you know, remember Prince writing Slave on his face, you know, because he was getting something like eight pence a CD sale. And I think George Michael had the same issue, didn't he? I think, though, for emerging artists who rely a lot on streaming services like Spotify and things, that is still the reality for them. I think mm-hmm. for, I mean, Prince is in, or, or George Michael's a different category, like financially, but I think for people who are touring bands or maybe unsigned bands, um, they're still getting 
three and four pence a tune. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's. I mean, the the streaming. The big thing again, talking to Edgar. I never mentioned it yesterday, but he has said to me before. You know, back in the day, because he was he was on a major yeah. um, in the nineteen nineties. Back in the day, you would uh, you would tour to to promote an album, but now you release an album to promote a tour. Yes, absolutely. Because there's no money in your music, absolutely. you've got to go out and perform it, and that goes right back to the original point. If these musicians can't perform, yep. they're making nothing or next to nothing, or relying on royalty checks, which are diminishing anyway, because we're entering a whole generation of, as you say, streaming where you're getting zero point zero 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 repeat to fade one pence a play, which just is uh, outrageous. I think as well, the streaming, I've, I've noticed an, an increase in people asking uh, people to donate to the streams. Yep. Like, pay, if you were going to pay a fiver for this night, just yep. pay, pay as a fiver. Do you think that's the way to go in certain, certain times? I think it's better than not doing it. I think, like, I mean, look, Bandcamp, do Bandcamp Fridays and things mm-hmm. at the moment. If you buy an album off that, you can guarantee it's going to go into the person who made its pocket mm-hmm. at a grassroots level. My one worry about doing that kind of thing is that you then become in a situation where only artists who are popular make financial make, gain make out of what they make. It's like the Arctic Monkeys MySpace scenario, and that worked out great for them. But, you know, I'm, I guarantee there will have been loads of great bands who didn't have that exposure on the internet. Uh, is that it's a, a bit uh, odd. Spoiled with choice, Aye, and you end up going down your own niche, yep. and you just keep on feeding that niche as yep. it goes. It goes there. I suppose we need to ask you about the fanzine. How did the fanzine come about? Um, the fanzine came about, you know, during lockdown. Um, I'd noticed this kind of garth and kind of gigs and things like that. I'd um, also. I, I've always liked fanzines. Um, I was into punk as a teenager. It was a big part of kind of punk culture. When I started performing, I was quite heavily platformed by a literary fanzine in Glasgow called The High Flight. Okay. Um, who some of the boys who ran The High Flight are now speculative books. So that's kind of how that came through. But Chris McQueer also was performing in those stages. Leila Josephine, Kevin P. Day. So people who are now I'm kind of known as writers mm-hmm. had a fanzine. My first publication was in a fanzine, that fanzine. And I thought, so it's really important. It's important to have a kind of grassroots outlet. And then when I started to think about it, I thought, you know... As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. There's real barriers to working class writers being published. There's real barriers to visual artists who are making political art, all of these things. And I thought, I just want to make something that will showcase some of that, even if it's just for a small audience. I never Mm -hmm. thought big. I just thought, just to get something out during lockdown... Um, my friend Joe got involved in issue one and there was a music influence to it. Um, and I'm happy just to kind of let it evolve as need be. But it was just to also and to go back to what you were saying, it gets some people like to have something in their hand. You know, I'll, I've been surprised at the amount of folk that have said, oh, send me a copy. 
because mm-hmm. they want to just read a pamphlet, mm-hmm. you know, and to look at it. I, I think that it's something that it's more personal, yeah. hold, holding it than reading it on a screen. We spend our time so much in front of screens now. Mm-hmm. It's great to just have a step yep. step back and actually sit and read something, read something physical, rather than just watch. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, even though you're reading it on the screen, it still feels like you're watching it. I think it, you're maybe not taking part. No, you're right. You're right because it's, you're using the same device, aren't you? Uh-huh. Um, I think when it comes to reading, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't do a, a hell of a, a lot of reading online. I, I read physical. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to music, I thought about this other day. I'm now digital, completely digital, Kevin. I don't buy physical music at all. I did uh, when I was in Edinburgh working because it was accessible. Yep. You know. Work, walking from my work to the bus station, I could pop into one or two record shops and buy it. And I, I did buy it back then. So visual and audio, I consume it digitally. Uh, and it's just the accessibility. But I still have that relationship with the written word where I want to buy, purchase and consume it a different way, yep. which is part of the process, of enjoying a, a good book yep, um, that you never lose. So absolutely. out of the three, if, if, and tell me if there's any other kind of elements of things that have been digitised in that respect, I definitely access my music and my film or TV digitally. Uh, but when it comes to literature, I prefer to have it in my hands. I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the same with you. I'm, I'm the music, the majority, all my music is now digital, mainly because I haven't got anything to play it on. And mm. once my two-year-old gets old enough to actually realise that he can't go near a record player, that is going to change. Back <laughs> that, that is going to change. And He's well-behaved, Kevin. He was in here. He was, I am. Chapping on the window, <laughs> looking for his dad. Wearing the, the all uh, the lime green Celtic away strip, which was lovely. Nice. So uh, I, I know that I'm going to go back to that. Yeah. I, I've, yeah. I've, already said, I've already told my wife that I'm going to go back to that. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, I'm fully digital. For somebody like myself... Seeing my poem in print yep. is far better than me posting it myself on a website. For for me sending it to you and you deeming it or and you and Joe deeming it good enough to go into a fa- fanzine is for me far better than me just posting it on Twitter or, or something like that or on my own website. And I know yeah. people have got to self publish, but I would I, for me it gives it a bit more of a value. No, I, I think that. From a practical point of view, as a writer, absolutely. I mean, you can self-publish if you like, but if you want to put a CV in to get like an internship or to apply for funding or any of these practical things that writers have to do, then they want to know where you've been published. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that getting published in a fanzine is going to win Creative Scotland over, but it's maybe a small... That process, as you say, of sending it in and having people like it, it's a confidence boost for you then maybe to send it somewhere else next time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. I, 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 know, I know what you're saying there. I mean, this, obviously this is no about me, but you've published that. The first the first poem I ever wrote, Jim McIntosh published it in Mind the Time. Yeah. That, that's that's where that's where I discovered yeah. that's first I time ever read your, uh, <laughs> the first time I ever read your work what, what was in Mind the Time. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, he, there's two established poets, Jim and yourself, of deem my work good enough to actually get published. And that gives me a bit of confidence. And I'm sure there's a lot of writers in, in your fanzine just now who are maybe first time published. A couple of times published, they'll be going, wow, that gives me the confidence to, to, do, it to, do, to do it again. Yep. And that's, that's 
what it's about, really. And it's also to kind of showcase, you know, mm. this is what this is what people have sent. This is mm. what's out there. If you look, because there's always people who look. I mean, you guys will know he's a really into music. You look for obscure music. You know, people are the same with literature. If they act, people read mm-hmm. and deliberately try to find cool stuff. And it's, I suppose it's back to that. That's what a fanzine is, isn't it? When we talk about fanzine, you, were, you know, it's a proper uh, kind of punk movement, isn't it? Yeah. And then when you look at the terraces, uh, 1980s, I guess, and I know that there were earlier programmes, uh, sorry, fanzines, Kevin, uh, prior to that, but it became part of the football supporting culture mm-hmm. in the 1980s, you know, the, the fanzine culture. And it's something that Kevin and I have uh, spoken to quite a lot of Celtic supporters about. So if we go back, I think we've always been pretty well served in the world of Celtic. Um, you know, if it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago and Kevin and I came up with an idea, it would have been a fanzine before it would have been a podcast, a Celtic state of mind, you know. But then I would have probably looked at what was happening around about Celtic and, and might have thought better of that because we were so well served uh, in the world of fanzines. Was there any Celtic fanzines that piqued your interest back in the day? Maybe of not a Celtic view. Like that that was kind of Pravda. around. But see, to be honest, I hate to say this, I think I'm maybe too young to remember fanzines being really heavily. You don't have to hate to say that, you should be saying that with pride. <laughs> Kevin and I, you know, we can remember it like it was yesterday, but uh, that's because we're old. But I, I loved Not The View, and I always name drop Not The View. That, for me, was the go-to Celtic fanzine. Yeah. And it's still going strong, which, yeah. I, again, I love the fact that it's going strong and as it's well. it's still got that 1980s look about it. They've never, they've never bored to change it. I love but, when you go into a newsagents and it's there beside the digger, and you're just <laughs> like, I'm going to buy them both. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like you see it, it looks like it's just been, it was an education back in the day because it wasn't, I mean, I would consume anything that had Celtic in it yep. when I was a kid and it was shoot, match, Roy the Rovers, the Celtic view, but I always subscribed to Not The View as well. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit grittier, uh, funny, a bit yeah. risque compared to the kids' magazines that I was reading at the time. Because I was a kid, I wasn't like 18 at the time, like you know. But you're reading about the board, boardroom issues, Celtic should be going public. 1987, Celtic fans were writing about Celtic becoming a PLC. You know, and it didn't happen for another seven years. Yeah. But they, they had the foresight and they, you know, that movement happened on the on the street level. And it, it never happened because of the fanzines, but the fanzines were a great vehicle for people getting that word out. And it created a, a, a revolution in the stands, you know, in, in, at Celtic Park, which uh, inevitably ended up in culminating in Fergus McCann's takeover. The fanzine movement was powerful, yeah. uh, you know, in football. And it's great that they're still able to survive, Kevin, I know you read them uh, on a digital level, don't you? Fanzines to this day. I, I'm kind of out with the scene when it comes to fanzines. So how healthy is the scene now, football-wise? I think there's a healthier scene now with quarterly publications. Mm-hmm. Like in-depth, long-form writing. Yep. And I think there's a market out there. Like you've got Nutmeg, uh, Mundial, before they've, they've, they've now actually went fully digital. Uh, the View fanzine uh, as well. But it's interesting that what Victoria says that they've like Chris McQueer, yourself, Kevin P. Goldie, all got the first break via an arts fanzine in Glasgow. Yeah. And these guys have went out to went now went on to have speculative books yep. as well as well. So I think there's there's maybe maybe not a big but it's like the vinyl revival, ain't it? I think there's people now going back to want to read magazines and have have the physical thing. And the fans in culture is still it has to change. 
because everything you can get your news and that all up to date instant now. So if you've got a monthly publication, you've got to make it worthwhile reading, mm-hmm. and it can't just be topical because it could be out of date by the time yep. by the time it goes out. So this is where I think the long form storytelling yeah. in depth stuffs coming in. Because people want to read that, they can get their fix of the index right, on the, the the news on their phone. Absolutely, yeah. but the one or, or via else, the Axon Bulletin, Kevin. Via the Axon Bulletin. Yes. Right. There's a lovely there's a, a zine library in Glasgow. The Glasgow Zine Library. If anybody's interested in looking more into that stuff, is a, a fantastic resource. It runs workshops and things like that for people making them. Um, but. The, the zines that seem to be going around are slightly maybe different from what you and I would consider a fanzine. Um, they're maybe more visual based mm-hmm. or they're more personal. There's a lot of really great queer literature and things coming through the fact stuff that wouldn't necessarily get published elsewhere, and it's given a voice to a specific subculture, just like punk. Punk um, So it is still happening, and people still like to make them and they like people make them in old printers and things mm-hmm. and the print stick the way they used to I, I can't be doing with that I'm not good enough to do any of that but um, I think there's still a place for the thing that you fold out of your pocket and it's like a big poster of hand drawn stuff mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think it bridges that gap doesn't it between the quarterlies you're talking about uh-huh. and me and Paula spoke about that quite a bit when we were speaking where we wanted a Celtic state of mind to go and publishing either a magazine or a book has always been part of it yeah. because we, we share that same sort of mindset, Polly. That, that's absolutely, like, I mean, like, eventually we'll maybe do it, mm-hmm. but it's always something that's been in the back of our minds. It's maybe it's an age thing, mm-hmm. because of the ages, but it's like something, it's better to pick up something for us yeah. than, than the. Just read it online or watch us online. I think the what the point you make with, with this quarterly or the, you know the the magazine that's almost like book worthy. Mm-hmm. It's so thick and well done, and mm-hmm. you know the art that goes into it, the design and, the, and that kind of aspect of it. It becomes something that be, could, could be part of a series that you would want to complete the series. Yeah. So as you're saying, Kevin, I, I, I tell you what. The, the guys at the Celtic Media team have got a job to produce a magazine every single week at the moment, which is a, a view. It's a, it's a magazine based on Celtic news, what's happening at Celtic. So there's got to be a view of looking at how you can do it differently, be that in-depth interviews, in-depth articles, which are almost investigative in their style. Um, Celtic fans will still want to read that. I would always still want to read an interview with Bobby Gillespie, Richard Ascroft, James Allen... Uh, Manny about Celtic, you know, I, I definitely would, or any movie maker, or, and if it's written well enough and in depth enough, then you would still buy and invest in that. I think it's difficult, it's going to be difficult for the club eventually to keep the Celtic view running, you know. And I've asked, obviously, they, they've got to give the answer that it will continue. It's the oldest club magazine in the world, mm-hmm. and I think they're very proud of that, and quite rightly so. It was, uh, you know, innovative at the time, it was innovative for a long time. And, um, you know, I think it hit a peak under Martin O'Neill in terms of sales yes. where they were up at fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 a week, which is astonishing. But it will be nowhere near that now. There's probably a, less than a tenth of that now buy it on a weekly basis. Because you can get it at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And 
I think what's nice, going back to what you were talking about, like Celtic fanzines and stuff, a fanzine is a political publication. Even in the 80s when people are talking about the Celtic board, that's a political act. You're attacking mm-hmm. the structure of the team you support. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's better than online, because you can publish something in a bit of paper much easier. You put it on Twitter, then it's out there. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, there's a bit of power in that. Um, and the Celtic view, as much as it's well read and stuff, it... it it's not that, it serves a different purpose mm-hmm. than people collectively getting together and airing grievances or concerns about a specific structure or community. Now, you mentioned political there. <laughs> Obviously, your fanzine is called We Only Want the Earth, <laughs> which is a quote by James Connolly. Yeah. So, tell us about how did that come about? Um, I- As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all every audience live conversations trusted influencers and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company go to iHeartResults.com for more life's too short to settle for the same old things whether you're picking up a new hobby or checking out that hot new restaurant in town movement keeps your look and lifestyle fresh with sleek ultra clean watches at a price that won't break your budget With a wide range of fresh modern designs and industry-leading materials, life never gets old with a movement on your wrist. Make your everyday sidekick for life's adventures a movement watch. Get 20% off at MVMT.com with code SLEEK. That's MVMT.com, code SLEEK. I I just have always liked that quote. Um, I admire James Connolly as a trade unionist and as a socialist. Um, He's Scottish or Irish, depending on <laughs> who you ask, you know. So, but I just like the idea. Of we we want we want it all. We want everything, and I just it just came to my mind, and I used it. Um, it's actually from everybody that we've spoken to about it. You're the first person that's actually picked up what it was. I'm surprised the amount of folk we've managed to slide it past. Slide, slide that bit. I've maybe let the cat out of the bag there. So, no, I mean I, I assumed it was common knowledge, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, I'm sure um, uh, those of the sort of left-wing socialist yeah. uh, persuasion would w- 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 would get it. I mean, as as well um, as I say, I, I came to the, first came to my attention uh, in the Mind of Time anthology mm-hmm. about uh, football, and you wrote a you wrote a poem in that about a, a romantic liaison with a Hibs casual <laughs> on on Leaf Walk. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how, how, how did how did you get into the writing poetry and the spoken word scene? Um, I wrote music, and I, I was I was writing music with well lyrics with a friend, and he took on well. And I was at an open mic night with my book of lyrics, and I read them. And I then started getting booked for poetry nights. I'd never called myself a poet or considered myself a poet in any shape or form, mm-hmm. and it just kind of spiraled from there and actually at the time I was just writing about my life you know I wasn't thinking about so if I, I, I fell into it, it I was lucky or so there was a house casual there was a house casual <laughs> aye unfortunately man <laughs> James Conley and hips casuals it's all very, very it's, go, it's all going a bit Easter Road here eh? so I back to Glasgow right okay <laughs> So, um, so you started going to the open night mics and that, yeah. and um, how 
was it just lyrics? Then you started writing. He says that you started writing about your life. Did you feel that the open open night mics suited you, or did you feel that you were different, or that you were accepted because obviously you're for the East End of Glasgow? So some some of these um, spoken word nights can sometimes be seen as not working class, and yeah. maybe that's just a perception that people have got. I mean, it's maybe a perception that I've got. Because I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have sent my poem in, not knowing it was you that was going to read it. Yeah, and I, I, I think that I feel like that about things as well. There's certain people that I like to kind of gig with or work with because I know that they just get me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not having, there's no kind of social divide between these. Um, but in saying that, no, some open mics I went to were really inclusive. I mean, um, there was a cafe called The Blue Chair that... I started performing that actually because it was bring your own booze and I could take my son and didn't get a babysitter. You know, and that sounds mm. really simple, but that removed a massive barrier but, to me as a performer. I, I could get him a bit of cake, I could have a coffee and actually enjoy art and go home. Mm. Um, a friend of mine uh, also used to run a night called Feel Better in McCool's, um, which I used to go to anyway because it's a Celtic and St Paul, you probably knew that. And it was absolutely, this night was chaotic. Like, it had all these different types of performers, some really high-profile ones, some people just showing up. They were maybe on tour and playing later, and they would show up with a guitar and, you know, kind of sound out. And so those places were places I felt very comfortable, which was great because it meant by the time I was going into what was maybe not my comfort zone, I already felt ready as a performer to be myself mm-hmm. um, and I I think it's really important to keep things like that going actually Kevin let's talk a wee bit about you your appearances um, as a poet as well because obviously we know that <clears throat> I forced you to, to recite some of your poetry in the last podcast mm-hmm. but you know that that's sometimes the best way isn't it just get put on the spot and that's exactly what happened to you at the Royal Concert Hall in front of how many 1500 people 1500 punters? Yes. So what happened that night? And I mean, that, that's going to basically remove any nervousness from you. Well, it was a strange night. Uh, obviously, that was a night that you didn't have any questions ready and I had to drive you through in the car. Secrets uh, coming out now, eh? <laughs> uh, so, no, that, no, that wasn't that, wasn't that night. That was another night. That was another night, <laughs> the, the, that one. Eh? That was a, I mean, folk think Paul was a professional in that and he turned up to my house that night and he went, Can you, do you know the way? Uh-huh. He went, well, can you drive? Because I've got any questions. <laughs> I mean, he was only interviewing Neil Lennon and Chris Sutton. <laughs> so, I mean, aye, so... The interviews, they just run themselves, <laughs> don't they? Oh, aye. <laughs> so, 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 turned up to the Royal Concert Hall and Kevin Miles, who you'll know, Celt at uh, my heart and my soul, was meant, to be, was, was meant to be do the pre-gig entertainment. But nobody told Kevin. But nobody had told Kevin Miles. <laughs> and there was a bit of a mix-up. And before I knew it, I had to get some stuff up on my phone, write it down. Mm-hmm. And I was going up onto the stage in front of 1,500 people to recite poetry when they were expecting Kevin Miles to come on and give them Hail Hail the Seltzer. A big sing-song in that. It went down well. Some Most of my gigs have been like that. My first ever gig... But what was even stranger about that night was when I was standing behind the stage waiting to go on, I was with Jim Craig. Mm-hmm. And Jim Craig was checking the security guard's teeth. 
because the security guard had a problem with one of his one of his back teeth. And Jim's given him dentist advice as I'm waiting to go on and recite poetry to fifteen hundred people. Yeah. So it was really quite surreal. Yeah. It, see, a line giving somebody dentistry advice, right? Even though Jim is a dentist. I'm but like, I'm not even prepared for <laughs> this. <laughs> I'm not prepared for this. And this is this is quite my first my my first ever night was at Broadcast, the, the launcher, uh-huh. mind the time. And I felt comfortable there because I'd been to Broadcast for gigs. Yep. So I, I knew the sort yep. of thing then. I, I just found it, and a couple of times I've done uh, Celtic AM mm-hmm. um, in Malone's. And that, that's just, I see it as a bit punk. Yeah. You, you, you're going into a, 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 a pub with 50 or 60 guys who are there to see a guy with an acoustic guitar singing some songs, and yep. I stand up and give him two poems. Yep. And, and it's the hush that you get. Is, is, I, I get a buzz for that. You should. It's really, it's really good. You should get a buzz. I mean, I, I think in the past, Kevin, you and I have spoken about that, how kind of risky it yep. might have been to walk into a, a busy boozer on a Saturday afternoon. But, you know, through thinking about that a wee bit more and analysing that, we're in among Celtic fans, so we probably shouldn't have had any concerns whatsoever that that type of thing would be accepted because I always think back to, to Celtic supporting families, for example, like my own, and it was all about art. It was all about singing and expressing yeah. yourself and being a Celtic fan has always been about that. So maybe in a normal scenario, being in a boozer on, on match day would be daunting, but when you're among Celtic fans, I think we probably should have expected a, a, a good reception, and that's exactly what you got. Maybe Victoria will maybe disagree with me or agree with me here, but I just see poems as short stories anyway. Yeah. And the, the Irish are a nation of storytellers. Absolutely. So absolutely, it's a, it's it's not an unheard of thing to you know have a family member that can recite something from start to finish, or sing a song really well, or play the tin whistle. So you standing up doing a poem about Celtic. In a Celtic pub, it takes guts, but at the same time, people are already primed for it. They're they're with you anyway yeah. because they like what you're doing and they already understand the spoken word. They maybe don't see it that way, but they do. Is that a bit different with you in the spoken uh, there's the spoken word nights? Because obviously, you talk about East End wife, mm-hmm. you talk about sectarianism, you talk about stuff like that. So. That, that sort of subject matter doesn't really come up in the spoken word scene. I think people can still recognise that it's your truth, even although they maybe don't know exactly what you're talking about, they, mm-hmm. they know where you're coming from. But you'd be surprised, actually, the amount of times you perform and people come up to you at the end and say, oh, I'm free there, or I know what you're talking about. I mean, you mentioned that poem about the Hibs casual. I remember performing that. And in deep in the west end of Glasgow, and I went outside for a cigarette, and this guy followed me out and showed me his hub season card. <laughs> He's like, oh, yes. And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> you know, put that poem in the bin for a while. <laughs> I'm like, I don't support them. <laughs> um, so, no, there's not, people, they get it. They do get a good story, as you say. I would love, I've never performed in Malone's or something. I would love to perform at a Celtic pub at a Celtic function. Nobody's ever asked me. Yeah, really? <laughs> I'm surprised at that. I really am. And I think that once we get back to a stage where we can do it, then it's definitely going to happen, isn't it? I don't know. It would. I'm just throwing it out there. <clears throat> definitely will happen. Sort it out. 
definitely. There's loads of gigs that are kind of on, uh, on hold. Celtic State of Mind pre-match poetry somewhere in a pub <laughs> before a game. Why not? We've had a few poets on here. We've had Kevin P. Gilday. Mm-hmm. We've had Aaron Boyle. Been on as well. We've also had Jim Leishman last week, but it wasn't a Celtic state of mind. But he came and joined us in the studio and recited a, a poem about a coup. <laughs> so that was interesting. I think it was a three line poem. Oh, Kevin, did you hear it? The cow in the slaughterhouse. Oh, yeah, did I did. So uh, yes, we do have we do have a, a wealth of talent in that respect. Um, as I said before, I've never written a poem in my life that I can remember. But you never know, I might write one one of these days. If I ever get my, my pen and paper back out, I might do that at some point. I mentioned Kevin Peagle all day. Talented young man, isn't he? Aye, aye. Um, Kevin's probably one of my favourite kind of poets in Glasgow. Um, I've been lucky enough to work with him before. Um, I've done quite a lot with Sonic Youth. And they directed um, my show Confessionals as well. So him and Kat Hepburn were the directors and producers for that. And... Um, He's just boss out, to be honest, isn't he? He just kind of just does that. He's one of the mad artists that he wrote a, a, a play, for, like an interactive spoken word show for the Fringe last year. And I'm like, I would never trust an audience to give me I'd, I'd be terrified. And I, I've got a lot of admiration for that. He is, he's a proper, his band, Kevin Peagle doing the Glasgow Cross, excellent Sonic Youth. Everything that's such high quality nights they put mm-hmm. on as well. Like, and I think that anybody could watch and enjoy them, even although you might not think you like poetry or you don't recognise any name in the lineup. There's always something, and that's just a pure passion thing, mm-hmm. I think, to kind of get that art form out there. You see, you see the the mixture that they've got on them nights, yep. and there's maybe not everything on it will be for you. But I went to the, the first one that they had in Stirling. And there was a, a guy there who was an illustrator and he was talking over his own cartoons in the back right. while somebody was playing drone guitar. Oh, wow. And they were completely like, I was like, wow, I would never... If somebody yep. would have said, oh, you're, com- you're coming to watch that, I would have no, no. But when I was there, I was like, that's, like really, that. that's <laughs> really quite interesting. You mentioned uh, confessionals. Um, so it says that you're a poet and that, but that was a stage show. That was a one-woman stage show. Yeah, it, it was a spoken word show. Confessionals um, was published as basically a 20-page poem about the Gallagate. Mm-hmm. Um, it was broken into four sections, but it was then... It had been the shell of a spoken word show for a feminist festival in Glasgow and then published, and then Sonic Youth produced it. And it was, it was me and my friend Abby Normal, who is a Glaswegian folk musician... Um, she kind of played the role of the the busker in the pub, like the acoustic act in the kind of Celtic pub. Mm-hmm. And we turned the stage into an Irish bar and just acted out the, every character in the poem to poetry and her tunes. <laughs> um, but and when you describe that, like, to me, only Sonic Youth could help you produce something like that. You know, the minute... I mean, Kevin Goldie right away was like, yep. And he encouraged you to be, like, he was like, what colour of light do you imagine here? And I'm like, that uh, emerald green. And he's like, right, I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody told me no. And I thought, um, 
So it was a massive piece of work, uh, but it was a total group effort, I think, in the end, to get that on tour. Is confessionals, can you still get that? It's on Spectre Books, eh? Yeah. Is it, is it back in print? I knew it was uh, sold out for, yeah. for a while. Yeah, I think it's on its third run now. Third run now. Yeah, and I think it's, it's on their website. I think it's £7 now on their website. So it's basically about a night out in a pub in the East End, eh? Well, not a night out, but what happens? Um, It's about... Domestic violence, but it's about like how the personal violence is perpetuated by the violence of poverty and addiction, and a lot of it's kind of that there's football culture interspersed in it because that's what my influence is. But mm. also, um, as a young woman submerged in that culture, I'm not that a young woman now, but that's where I take a lot of my influence. And a lot of it, it was misogynist, and it was rough, and it was quite like jarring at times and I, I wanted to write about that I wanted to write you know these are the characters that you encounter and these are the kind of things that this is how it feels like to stand because sometimes I used to feel when I was younger say I'd been to a game and I'd went to the pub after it I used to feel like I was on the outskirts mm-hmm. you know like and it was just I just wrote what I'd observed and hoped and other people recognised it as being their truth as well it wasn't just me the other poem in Mind the Time actually captures that because you have two, three poems in Mind the Time, was it? I might have. I remember sending two. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't mm-hmm. seen confessionals, but I've seen video clips there, yeah. and it looks really, really, really powerful. And how did, did, did that not, was that not daunting for you to say, right, you're going to do this forty-five, or however long it is, and it's just going to be you and Abby on the stage? And you're going to need to remember all your words. Aye, it was massive. And it was, we had rehearsals before it and I was going home at night and I could hear like Kevin and Kat's voice in my head <laughs> when I was in bed at night going, do this with you, blah, blah, blah. And I'd never done anything like that before. But, do you know, it was so empowering because um, we, we took it on tour. Mm-hmm. Like, so it was two, two friends, two women on tour and their green Adidas trackies, like telling her about Selic and... The Gallagate, and it was brilliant. It was worth the effort because of the whole experience of it. Didn't they put you off because you've done it again, eh? Exiles. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with Exiles um, because obviously the coronavirus thing mm. kind of put, but we did run a, a short kind of version of that before Christmas. Um, the Exiles is going to be published by Speculative Books in October um, as a full collection of like, essays and poems connected to that. I would love to turn it into a show, mm-hmm. somehow, but I don't know how I would do it just now. What's the themes in Exiles? It's exactly what it says in the title? Or? It's um, it's kind of made up of like poetry and essays, and the poetry tells a story of a couple who kind of become involved in the Iraq war, or the kind of post-Iraq war, one of them signs up for the army, and it kind of plays out. But the essays are about Glasgow, they're about... The gentrification of Glasgow and like Glasgow becoming this new alien city, um, because I felt I, I felt very quickly after the Commonwealth Games I thought I didn't recognise this place mm-hmm. anymore. I don't belong here anymore, and that's where the name came from. I felt an exile in my own city. That's that's us being Celtic fans as well. Um, you noticed the change round about Celtic Park. And for when yep. I went in the I went in the nineteen eighties, exactly. it's, it's a completely different place now. 
And I remember that time, Paul, we had the guys up for the Anfield rap. Mm, now, if, yeah. you, if, if you've ever been to Anfield, Anfield still got all the terraced houses round about it. Right. And it's still... I was there Saturday. I was at Anfield on Saturday. I thought Edgar was a Everton fan. Aye, but I drove to Anfield and oh, then phoned him to say, yeah. where do you live? <laughs> it was just a nice place to go. And just round the corner, actually, is where he was. So I was yeah. down there. And the guys for the Anfield rap couldn't believe the amount of space that was mm. round about Celtic Park. And I says to them, well... Never, used, like never used to be like this. There used to be a railway bridge down there. There used to be tenements all, all around about here. And it's just funny how things have changed and how yeah. Glasgow has decided to change the, the stand, yeah. especially with the Commonwealth Games. You've mentioned Celtic. So, question we always ask. It's great to do a, a Celtic State of Mind interview again, Paul. I probably haven't done one since December. It's been a while. It's been a while since. It's been a while, I've Kevin, since you. Yes, probably the Tollbooth would have aye, been the last one. Tollbooth, aye. Mm. So, what was your Celtic team growing up then? Or the first Celtic team that you oh, fell in love with? A big think about this, and I think it, it's probably really controversial to say it. I'm sure it'll be poo hooed. But um, that kind of round about 2006 era Celtic squad, the kind of Petrov and Lennon. Boric, that kind of thing. But it's purely probably because that's when I was going to football regularly. It was also a time when, you know, you didn't necessarily know who was going to win the league for one year to the next, so you were hooked and invested mm-hmm. for the offset, you know. But it was just, I was old enough to have disposable income to go to it, but young enough to pure throw myself into it. And I still have a soft spot for that. Squad in that era. Any team that contains Nakamura. Absolutely. <laughs> deserves a special mention. Nakamura were quite poetic. Whatever that word is, people. <laughs> and uh, Nakamura was just, he was an artist. Absolutely. He, I asked Kevin this question when he was in, and I think I asked Evan Boyle as well. Any Celtic player you think could have been a poet? You looked at them and went, I think Nakamura could have been a poet. Uh, I could see him sitting there writing. That's a huge question. Are you thinking intellectually, Kevin, or just visually? <laughs> just Did visually. they look like a poet? <laughs> just visually. Right. Or uh, maybe even, well, uh, after Bore, it looks like a heavy metal drummer. Paddy McCourt. I would go to see Paddy McCourt perform spoken word like that. These mad kind of... Well, the way he looked when he played for Celtic in a mad camp. That's a great shout because so many uh, great poets are Irish and great writers and great lyricists. So, aye, brilliant. Aye, Love I, it. I can see what you're meaning with the big, when he had the big long hair. And, mm. Aye, aye, I get, get that. And I could just imagine him just being a bit drunk at the mic and a bit <laughs> wide and just a mm. bit hot maybe. And I would totally go and see Paddy McCourt. I'd pay to see that. Aye, totally. I'd say to pay to see that. I mean... And he was, you know, he was poetry in motion, he was, you know, artistic as a player and all this kind of stuff that you could say McCourt would fit that, would fit that. But what was your suggestion, Kevin, when you posed that question before? Oh, Salmonass, eh? I think so, you did say Salmonass. Salmonass was like quite a easy answer, really. Yeah. Because of the long hair and the fact that he went in the huff quite a... Quite a lot. And dramatic, uh, absolutely. Very, it's extremely dramatic. That he, did, he, did Sammy go in the half? He just had that unfortunate knack of looking like he was always in the half. <laughs> as, soon as, you know he put that, as soon as he put that snood on, he knew that was it. Game over, he wasn't going to play until spring came about. Again. 
That's right. Samaras, right. So he, I, that, he probably had the kind of the um, the mystique and, and the look of a poet, didn't he? Uh, I'm not sure who else. I'm thinking Cantona, right? Because obviously he he told a very uh, he was quite poetic, didn't he? Okay. And he recited a wee line of poetry that will go down in the in the history books, uh, um, football culture. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I don't think have we had somebody like that playing for Celtic. Because I mean, a genius, but also a cult, a genius who didn't like um, do what was expected. I don't know if a genius, but I do think Arthur Boric was a cult figure. You know, a fan favourite. Um, he felt like a genius at the time, and then it seemed to go very wrong at times as well. Oh, that should be that should be a, a there should be a a line that they can either fall off. Zidane, perfect example. Like Aye. always got that butter. Mentalness in them. I'm trying to think, like who else, or think further back. Actually, I'm trying to have think of my unconscious bias is putting me to the French players. I'm trying to think <laughs> of the French players who would maybe be Stefan Mahi. There you go. There's your poet right there. <laughs> yep. Just yeah. imagine it, Kevin. Stefan Mahi. He could be a poet. He could be a painter. Enrique All of the above. I want to. I want to say. Uh, I could Enrique only that. drives big motorbikes. And he's a hell's angel. He's not a poet. That's a good point. I, I want to re- withdraw Arthur Boric now for that mix. Now you've said that. <laughs> when we spoke to Kevin McDermott, I said I, I could see Arthur Boric as a death metal drummer in a death metal band, and, and just like and just battering. Daylight, sort of set of drums. He'd be a roadie that would also like double up as a bodyguard, I think. Right. Arthur Boric. Now, Victoria, it's been an absolute pleasure for you to come along and uh, I threw Kevin under the bus before to recite some of his poetry. I believe you want to recite some poetry yourself. Yeah, I would like to recite a poem by Stephen Watt mm-hmm. that is in our fanzine, um, just because I think it fits the theme and it, I, I just love it. I love Stephen Watt, he's a great kind of Poet, but he, he writes a lot of really good football poetry as well. He was Dumbarton's poet and residency things. So I wanted to read it, um, and it's called Frisk. Here we go, the yellow day glow heroes of the stadium. They form a lemon obstruction between us and hedonism. Green glass inside black cotton, the quarter bottle resting against my left shin. It forms a padded square covering that any amateur could detect. And yet, this pat-down, rub-down, tender examination neglects to root out the reason for my effervescent eyes, weaving, wonder, hiccuping expression. He seems to be enjoying this. My piss-kisser is a red flag, scumbags, odds stacked against me being permitted access. I'm the equivalent of a backpack jihadi maniac. But then he steps back. And it becomes bliss. Olympic white floodlights the stadium, a quilt and tartan tarmac, and when one hand grabs my right leg. What's this? He quizzes. And my spirit vanishes. The master plan sags when today's frisker exposes my overlooked ankle tag. Well done. Brilliant. That's great, Stephen. 
Listen, thanks to everybody who has tuned in to watch us on a Celtic State of Mind. Kevin Graham has made a welcome return to the the show that uh, made a Celtic State of Mind a name for itself back in the day where we would bring someone along from the world of the arts and speak to them about their love of Celtic. So it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Victoria, and uh, stay in touch. No worries, thank you very much. Thank you. Marketers Report. Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct to Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Social Podcast Network. Sports 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 Social Podcast Network. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.